Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. It's another week of Suncast, another fantastic insight into the life and times of leaders in the clean tech revolution. Thank you so much for lending your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you have, and that's your time. Wherever you are, we're super grateful that you've chosen to listen to Suncast. And hey, if you're new here, I wanna hear what you get out of this episode. So please go connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Today's entrepreneur has been inside the leadership team of some of the most successful brands in the solar industry and at critical times in their growth journey. Today, we're gonna take a look at her view from the bridge, as it were. Megan Gaynor is head of marketing and communications at Distributed Solar Development, or DSD as we'll refer to it, which originally was incubated inside of the one and only GE, yeah, General Electric. Her 14 years of commercial marketing and communications experience helps her thread the needle for marketing, communications, public relations strategy and execution for the companies that she's been privileged to help build. Companies like Comcast, Sun Edison, Solar City, Tesla, GE, and now of course, DSD. If these are the kinds of insights and nuggets that you drop into Suncast to glean, I really hope that you're subscribing to the podcast. My player of choice is Spotify, but we're distributed on just about every podcast player out there. And that's gonna ensure that you won't miss our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can also go to mysuncast.com where you can look in to all the resources for the 350 plus founder stories and startup advice through all the Suncast catalog. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, Megan, I think we're going to have a fun conversation today. It's great to be able to chat with you again, and I'm really looking forward to unpacking everything that is knowable about DSD up to now. You ready for it? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, welcome. Look, everybody's got an origin story, and I'd love, I'm fascinated by your journey. You've worked with some of my favorite people on the planet, like we've talked about, Adam James among them. Can you tell me (laughs) how you transitioned from telecom to clean energy. What was that foray into renewables like for you? And how did you decide that this is where you wanted to focus your career? So the first seven years of my career, I spent in telecom with Comcast. Um, It was a great seven years. I loved the people I worked with. But over the course of time, I started getting a little bit pigeonholed in my role and really started to look at, okay, what do I want to be doing long-term? I really wanted to be working for an organization that was truly making a difference and answering some of the, you know, big, hard questions that we were facing globally. And so I decided to leave Comcast and pursue an MBA in an effort to sort of pivot my career. 
And of course, as you are applying for MBA programs, they always ask you what you want to do with your MBA. So I really had to take a look at, okay, where where do I want to take this? And I had always from a very young age, always been very environmentally conscious, even though I may not have really fully appreciated the idea of sustainability or climate change or those big hard questions. When I was trying to answer those application questions. I wasn't yet confident enough to say that I wanted to be an an entrepreneur or wanted to go into a startup realm, but I did see some big industries that that were established that were making some really large sustainable changes. And living in Philadelphia at the time, the idea of unregulated energy was relatively new and very intriguing to me. I had received a personal household energy bill saying, did you know you have the choice to opt into sourcing your energy from renewable energy? And no, I did not know that. And that to me was really interesting because it was a way for me to help be a part of a big change within a very established, you know, 100 plus year industry and decided that that's what I wanted to do and what I wanted to at least explore um, in my two years as part of an MBA program. So what I did, I I decided to pursue my MBA with Wharton. Um, I had the uh, lucky, I still say to this day, they're going to call me and say, you really weren't actually accepted. We made a mistake. But anyway, I used and abused my two years there to tap into my colleagues and fellow students who had been in the renewable energy industry and really learned everything I knew in terms of, or everything that they knew in terms of, you know, what, what opportunities there were and, you know, what's the best way to kind of get into this, this industry. And then I raised my hand to be a co-chair of the um, energy conference, uh, thinking at least then I have something on my resume that points to the fact that I have some experience here, even though if I, I really still don't know what I'm talking about. And that was enough uh, to really start establishing some inroads and start building my network a little bit in the industry. And while I always wanted to continue in my marketing expertise, because I love it, it's my passion, I also saw that there really wasn't much sort of quote-unquote marketing opportunity within these companies. So it became obvious to me that more of a general management role is likely going to be something that I would have to start with, probably work my way a little bit from the ground up. But I was willing to do that in order to feel like I was working for a company that was making more of a difference. And luckily for me, a lot of these organizations had what were called leadership rotational programs or programs where they drop in MBAs or other master's degree students, and they basically leverage their talent and abilities to move them around a company, you know, every six months or so to do something new, provide a new role, basically, you know, dive in, help solve a particular problem, and then move over to another area of of the organization that needs some help. And so that I thought was a great opportunity for me to not only learn the industry in real time, but also, you know, continue to expand my capabilities and really figure out what I wanted to do with this industry long-term. So that's kind of where I landed with Sun Edison as my first real foray into the renewable energy industry. And that's a whole other story. (laughs) Oh yeah, it's a whole other story, probably a whole other episode. I did want to know, 
you ended up being chief of staff for the distributed generation segment of Sun Edison. Who were you chief of staff for? So initially for Mike Dilworth, who was the head of CNI at the time, and then Raphael Dabrinsky, you know, when he took over for Mike Dilworth there. And I learned a lot from Raphael. He was, uh, he was a really great sort of mentor and really encouraging to me to identify because I told, you know, he, he knew my marketing skill set and he knew that this area was lacking and he was actually the one who helped sort of spearhead the idea of building a CNI marketing team within Sun Edison, which no other CNI developer really had at the time. Yeah, as a carve out, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, Sun Edison did a lot of things that were ahead of their time. There are two questions that I have from the preamble of how you got to Sun Edison that I really want to drill into. You just touched on one, but the first is you said, I love marketing. What do you love about marketing? And how did that passion for marketing manifest itself in those early days at Sun Edison where you tried new things? I'd love to hear what do you love about marketing and, and how did you put that into work at, at Sun Edison? What I love is the fact that it's focused on understanding what others need and what they want and what they are looking for. So it really challenges you to listen and to go beyond what your assumptions are. That doesn't just refer to what people identify as your end customer, somebody purchasing a product, somebody who's going to benefit from your particular service. It also applies to partners that you have, right? Or to even folks internally who are your quote unquote customer. I really love listening to people's problems and the things that they're trying to solve for and coming up with creative ways that I can tell them how what we provide will help them solve their problems in ways that they that might not be obvious on the surface. We're definitely going to talk about this when we get into the work you're doing with DSD, but I'm curious, early in your career renewables with fresh eyes coming out of telecommunications, how did that problem-solving approach help the distributed generation team at Sun Edison and then later at Solar City. What do you feel like you put your thumbprint on? I was actually in charge of within sort of our marketing, the, 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 I'm going to say organization, but it was a very small, very tight marketing team that we had. I was in charge of the channel partnership piece of it. It's largely because when I was with Comcast, one of the last roles I had was actually managing our channel program and helping get that up and running. So I basically did the same thing with uh, Sun Edison. So going out to anything from, from, you know, folks, individual consultants who just want to slip us leads to other developers that potentially wanted to work with us to develop a to co-develop a project all the way up to organizations, large organizations, large real estate organizations that knew they wanted to be a part of distributed generation, but didn't have the skill set in-house to do so. And therefore, they would bring us the customers and together we would sell our solutions. So kind of all of these different realms of channel partnership. What I was bringing to the table was, okay, how do we make sure that these partners truly are working for us? That at the end of the day, when they're bringing solutions to a customer, they want to bring our solution first because it's the one that they would personally stand behind. So that goes into 
building your brand, building your culture to be, you know, to be able to work friendly with other folks who may on the surface look like competitors, to providing them with the tools that they need to, to succeed, and also making them feel really valued as a partner, not like they're just a vendor that we're doing, you know, that we're, we're paying them a fee for. That really does make a difference at the end of the day. When you treat organizations like the people that belong to those organizations, it's amazing how, how much that will help you. It's remarkable the way that it can help turn the corner with a customer in that way. You know, one of the things that a lot of marketers forget and that you and I have talked about a bit in prep for this discussion is the duality of customer for a marketer at, especially at a big company, but increasingly at small companies as folks are trying to build out sales teams. The marketing team serves two functions, uh, well, many, many, many functions, but with respect to the customer, it's to serve the internal customer, the sales team, to make sure they have everything they need, to grease the skids, to make it easy for them to make the sale by educating the external customer. So you've got these two customers, right? You've got to serve the salespeople with good leads, qualified leads, good educational collateral, and sort of set the plate or set the table for the banquet. But you've also got to attract that end customer. How has that created friction and opportunities for growth for you in the companies that you've uh, worked with up to now? I would say where the friction lies is how do you divide your time, right? How do you prioritize it? Because every salesperson, especially when you, when you um, have very large and complicated sales organizations, they become, you know, the loudest person in the room wants to get something, but you really have to take a step back and say, well, is this one person the only person that's going to leverage this, you know, piece? So if I have X amount of time in my day, am I going to spend it on something that they're asking for because they are the loudest in the room? Or should I instead spend it on developing something that may loosely fit what they need it for, but also help, you know, other folks within the organization. So there's that piece. And then the other piece too is walking that fine line between understanding what your role is as a marketer and getting the sales team to understand what your role is as a marketer. So my role as a marketer is not to hand them hot leads. That's right. In all fairness to me, because <laughs> then right. I would just be a salesperson and I prefer to just get the commissions for those hot leads. Right, right. <laughs> my role, right. So my role is to set them up for success so that they don't need to particularly ask for things from me and so that they can put their best foot forward. Yes. And the marketing, the marketing piece actually becomes like a behind the scenes, I don't really exist. You've done your job well if it's a if it's a layup for them. Exactly. Yeah, I'm doing air quotes exactly. here for those who can't so, see us. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so ideally, like you know, mar to me, marketing doesn't exist to get a pat on the back for delivering something in particular. Marketing exists to be sort of that underlying foundation that's just there that customers expect and 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 that our sales team feels confident going to market with. And a lot of that has to do with continuity and building a brand from the ground up and ensuring that that continuity of brand is not only in, of course, all of the materials and the, you know, the look and feel of stuff that you're putting out there, but the way the entire organization from the sales team all the way to the folks who are you know, in accounts payable, work and operate. 
So it's that blending of brand and culture that to me is, is most important, especially when starting sort of from the ground up. Well, we're definitely going to talk about the ground up in just a moment. I would love to hear from that broad perspective that you've presented. I mean, we're talking companies that either are or went on to be publicly traded companies, Comcast, GE, Sun Edison, SolarCity was acquired by Tesla. Were there any particular, we'll call it from on high, from the organizational infrastructure, from your university, from your own learning, were there mental models or maps that you began to create, tools that you learned and now are deploying at DSD that have served you to address exactly what we just discussed? There definitely are. I mean, what I'm talking about is, is not rocket science. It's essentially blending all of my experience together into what I see as, to me, seems very just logical. But what I also see is not actually practice widespread, especially not within our industry. The one thing I go back to, and it's funny because it, it actually did kind of start at Comcast, despite the fact that everybody is going to disagree with me who is a current Comcast customer, is customer first. We had, we had a saying at Comcast that was think customer first. Some brilliant person thought of it in order to help turn around our um, or attempt to turn around our customer experience, which was obviously a, a thorn in Comcast's side and probably still is to this day. But think customer first has always resonated with me. And the idea that if you have a customer-centric mindset, you will not only attract the customers that will bring you the most lifetime value, but that you will be seen as that that will be identified as an outlier more often than not. And so then you can overcome things like needing to have the lowest price or needing to have the most bells and whistles. Because at the end of the day, if you're thinking customer first, you have the exact right product for the customers that you're trying to serve. And they will pay whatever they value for that product. That to me is, is one definite underlying model that drives me every day. Um, in terms of tools and just, you know, kind of what I, how I approach my job um, and my career, number one is be curious. And it kind of goes hand in hand with thinking customer first is, you know, always ask questions, always listen to the answers. When nobody is raising their hand to do something or take something on, that's generally an opportunity for you to raise your hand, even if you have no idea what you're doing, because nobody else has any idea what they're doing either. Therefore, when you screw up, they can't complain. I'm sure you must have a million examples, but is there a concrete example of how you did that and it, and it helped you on that ascension of your own career? I guess the first time I did this, that it proved out is, is the story I'm going to tell because um, it's when I decided that this was actually something that, and this is to this day, something that I give advice to anytime people ask for advice. When I was at Comcast, I was brought on board for my second role within Comcast to help start up Comcast business. And by help start up, I, I solely mean that I was one of the first employees. I was not actually looked to for, for strategy or anything like that. So don't take, don't take that beyond more than what it actually is. <laughs> to help execute on the plan other people made. Yeah, exactly. got it. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, uh, so a larger initiative at Comcast was happening at the time where we had gotten to the point where our billing system turned into our CRM, which actually happens a lot in large organizations. And therefore, we needed to pivot to Salesforce and redeploy a CRM. Mm -hmm. Long story short, we basically had to go through our billing system and identify 
all of the various billing codes within that were developed in the last 20 years and figure out what they map to. Nobody within our relatively small, call it, you know, 10 to 15 person headquarter B2B team knew even where to start or wanted to, frankly, touch this with a 10-foot pole because it was going to be obnoxious. So I took this as an opportunity to say, let me make a name of myself here at headquarters and raise my hand and take this on because I know I'm going to have to touch every single piece of this organization in order to get this done. I also knew it was probably something that I would do and never, ever want to do again, which is 100% true. And yet at the same time, I found myself deploying a new CRM at Sun Edison, deploying a new CRM here at GSD. Go figure. The skills, yeah. (laughs) They came in handy, even though I knew what I was getting into. And sure enough, it did. Not only did it give me exposure to other areas that were developing within the organization, I learned about, you know, ways to change process, ways to affect, um, you know, better efficiencies within an organization as a whole. And it gave me exposure to leadership within Comcast that I would have never gotten as quickly as I did by taking on this project. And so that was super valuable. And I saw that as an opportunity where even if something looks messy, even if you have no idea what you're doing going into it, if nobody else is willing to take it on, but it's important, then it's totally worth you raising your hand and learning something new. And you never have to do it again necessarily, but you will be glad that you did. And recognize the transferable skill opportunity to learn something that is universal and you don't get tapped to lead a CRM migration, for example, at the strategy level, if you haven't rolled up your sleeves at some level and done the nuts and bolts gravity work. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and not to say that my CRM deployments at Sun Edison and here at DSC were clean because I have that experience because they are always messy, but at least I knew with each iteration, I knew the questions I needed to ask. Oh, that is so um, powerful. the answers I needed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> know the questions that you need to ask. I think that that yes. might be one of the great takeaways from not only this interview, but all of them is our career, the trajectory of our career helps to formulate an understanding of the questions we need to ask. If we remain vulnerable and curious and open to the idea that we don't have all the answers, but we at least are informed enough to ask the right questions, that for me is, is what defines great leadership. I think the other big piece there too is to be okay with making mistakes um, and owning mistakes and taking accountability for it and knowing that you can just make sure you learn from them and just move on. Mm -hmm. Um, I think too, especially young folks or people who are young in their careers are afraid to make mistakes. And, and actually I do, there are definitely some leaders out there who don't hold themselves accountable and it's clear and it's detrimental to the organization as a whole when a leader does that. So I think that's another just, just key point that I always try to keep in mind. All right. So you've got Salesforce for your sales team. How's that working out for you? How great would it be if someone could actually just come in and really make your whole solar sales process deliver results? And what's more, what if you could actually see all the sales data in one dashboard? Pipeline, forecast, aging, deals that are about to close, the whole darn thing. Look, I have someone who can help do all that. They're called Indium. And right now, 
For a limited time, you can get a Salesforce tune-up, a process assessment from them entirely on the house. Just click on the Endium logo over at mysuncast.com and start getting more value from Salesforce finally. You know, it's the time of year where folks start moving around from business to business, job to job, career transition is at its peak. And it's often a time where folks look to someone else to help organize their thoughts and guide their principles. I've spent the last 15 years in renewables. I've spent the last five years coaching founders and startup executives in this space specifically. And for the last year, I've been helping folks transition out of oil and gas and other industries into renewables. And I've found that there are a few things that are commonalities. I'd like to invite you, if that sounds like something you're interested in, to have a conversation with me about whether or not coaching might be in your future and working with me might be something that would help level up your business or your personal career path. You can fill out an application over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the work with me button in the very top right. And everyone who fills out an application, I'm going to set up a 15-minute clarity call. So I'd invite you to run, fill that out if this sounds remotely interesting to you. And let's have a chat. See if there is, in fact, a fit. I look forward to chatting soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Suncast. Let me know if I can help you in other ways. Megan, I'm going to fast forward a couple of roles. I want to get a sense for how your career has begun to really develop you into an executive leader. You now head marketing for DSD, as we've discussed. You were doing some really interesting work at Tesla, managing channel partnerships, et cetera. How did you know that it was time to go? It was time to start looking for something new and how did that, that next opportunity present itself for you? Yeah. So at Tesla, it was, you know, it's a very dynamic place to work, of course. Um, But I was starting to really lose some motivation because it just felt like everything was about the vehicles and it felt like the energy business was always sort of secondary. And so I started to search for new opportunities and and keep my eyes out, essentially. Not super active. Uh, We also wanted to move back east, move our family back east to be closer to family. So I was looking for opportunities there. In a very timely manner, one of my old Sun Edison colleagues actually reached out and was asking me a question about the channel partnership program that I had developed there. I answered his question and he said, oh, by the way, you know, here at GE Solar, we're, we're looking for somebody to head up marketing. I know you have a marketing background. Do you happen to know anybody who might be interested? I asked him where it was going to be located. Um, and he said, East Coast. I said, ding, ding, ding. I said, you know, I might be interested in learning more started to brush up my resume. I was not anticipating needing to, you know, actually be proactive that quickly, but brushed up my resume, sent it on over, you know, six months later, I landed at GE Solar. Honestly, did not think I was ever going to become part of a large organization again. It was not really where I wanted to be per se, although going through sort of the Sun Edison, Solar City, Tesla, Solar Coaster, I was also kind of looking for a little more stability for at least a little bit, you know, to get my footing again. So it did present as another opportunity to kind of be a part of a startup-y type company within the lar- a large organization, you know, so it feels entrepreneurial, with a, but safe, <laughs> if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, totally. 
You know, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of my colleagues go into or come out of GE Solar. Surely you did your research. What was it that attracted you to the team that at that time was, I would say, like restarting, I don't know, for the third, fourth, fifth time, a solar division inside of GE? Honestly, it was it was the folks I was talking to in interviews. The interview process for GE Solar was probably one of, I don't want to say it's one of the easiest, but it was, it was just having conversations. And like we all kind of meshed really well together from the get-go. It felt like I knew these people for a while. And then what really sealed the deal was when I met our CEO, Eric Scheman. Remember, we were at the, you know, the old GE plant, all still there in Schenectady, New York. And I was sitting, uh, you know, in a conference room talking to Eric and he was just so straightforward and transparent, also just so realistic um, and down to earth and uh, understood what it took to make a solar developer work and frankly scale in a very, you know, responsible way, which (laughs) coming from the companies I came from, responsibility was not necessarily at the forefront. So um, in terms of running a business, so he really sealed the deal for me. And I, and I was like, I'm going to follow this leader, you know, with whatever he does. You've got some rock stars on that team, especially Northeast solar rock stars like Matt Danisco <laughs> and rock, Rob Jetty. Yep. Like guys that everybody in the Northeast, at least the Northeast solar market knows, <laughs> reveres, respects. For me, it always represents an interesting conundrum because a project like starting GE Solar for a guy like Rob Jetty seems to me like prison, you know, but he's used to that kind of bureaucracy, having watched several of the companies he's, he's helped grow, sort of move into this increasingly bureaucratic vehicle, like some would say necessarily so to attract the kind of finances that you all are able to attract. But at what point did the entrepreneurial genetics of the team that's now DSD start to show themselves. How did you know that it was time to, we'll call it spin out of GE and develop the plan, first of all? Like, what did that look like from the inside? It's funny because the way Eric actually started it, um, it it was very sort of anti-bureaucratic. He happened to be in a meeting and basically pitched this idea and they said, fine, if you think this will work, you go do it. And so it, it was started um, within GE Ventures, kind of not really seen as a real business per se. So I think that entrepreneurial spirit and Eric and actually probably also our CFO, Greg Fabso, did a really good job of kind of shielding us from the bureaucracy that they were dealing with within GE and kind of allowed us to always operate very autonomously. We were also, we were, you know, a rounding error in terms of, you know, the size of our business within GE. So we could fly under the radar pretty easily. And I do think it was always kind of in the back of Eric's mind as this became a real business. It wasn't a good fit for GE. I mean, GE sells stuff at huge mass scale. A solar development business is is not that, um, right? It's not it's not a cash business. The first two years, we were essentially flipping projects just to show GE that we could be profitable. And that's not the long term business model that that we knew would would kind of get us where we needed to go. And so, um, knowing that, um, I think it was kind of always in the back of our minds that that we would eventually need to spin out. 
that said, when, when we made the decision to do so, part of it was the time within our business that felt right. We've, we felt like we were big enough and we knew what we were doing enough. Part of it was also the time within GE where, you know, GE was really in some trouble. We knew that we weren't going to get necessarily the support that we would need to take the company to the next level from GE. Um, they just didn't have it to give. With that in mind, we started shopping ourselves around to the market and quite honestly, um, were dumbfounded <laughs> at the kind of attention that we got where, where um, you know, the, the names that were brought to the table. What were you shopping? You were, at the time at GE, uh, the market was probably more than a little confused. Are you leveraging GE's capital and name? Are you leveraging GE's technology? There's always the, do I have to buy GE inverter? Because that's what GE Solar had been inadvertently uh, and, and overtly through the years. What were you shopping? Like what was being spun out? The team, were there assets? Did you have a defined platform and, and business model that already had a pipeline? How, how had it grown in that two years? Yep, that was exactly it. It was, we were selling the platform. Um, we were selling, um, uh, you know, the team, the full team, how we operate and our pipeline of projects, quite frankly, because we didn't have any, uh, any assets under ownership. Everything had been sold um, either to the end customer, which a lot of the end customer was GE as well at the time. But it was largely it was how we did business. It was our platform. It was our people that we were that we were bringing to the table. And you guys were bankrolling. You're bankrolling the projects on GE's balance sheet as tax equity play, or how how was it originally structured under GE, and that made it compelling for someone to step in? It was largely bankrolled by GE. We didn't have external funding that I was aware of, so GE Capital played a big role. I believe we knew we were asking for at the time was essentially backing in terms of, you know, just, just SG&A costs, um, cost of, of doing business with the understanding that we would go out and get, you know, third party financing and the more, you know, quote unquote, traditional solar development type model. So who came to the table? How did that, were you, were you, I guess as a marketing director, you were directly involved in developing the pitch deck, helping yeah, so I was I was involved in some of this stuff, but largely tertiary. So wasn't involved in a lot of the day to day. Definitely was not involved in the pitch meetings. Thank goodness. Our CTO Eric Pollock, our CEO Eric Sheeman, Rob Jetty from from a COO perspective, and then Greg Fabso from a CFO perspective. They are the ones kind of going out and doing you know the dog and pony shows. Had interest from a bunch of different players. I'm not necessarily going to name any names, but um, eventually we narrowed it down to two. One of which being BlackRock. And my understanding is the choice to it, it, it was kind of, it kind of ended up being our choice, which is nice that it came down to that. But um, we chose BlackRock because it just felt like obviously their name was huge. And so that was a key aspect of it. But they were very interested in what we were doing and letting us do our thing. Like they, 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 you know, didn't want to, even though they were going to have a majority stake in the company and be on the board, they didn't necessarily want to interfere. And I think that that was something that we wanted to, we really wanted to make sure stayed intact was the way we were doing things and the way we were building our company. So BlackRock ended up taking an 80% stake in us. GE still really wanted a foot in the door. They saw what we were doing. They knew that they wanted to be a part of it. So GE Renewable Energy ended up with a 20% share and we had essentially a trademark and licensing agreement with GE to continue to leverage some of that brand. And so we became a GE Renewable Energy venture. 
within that. And so I played, I played a big role in, in some of that negotiation as well. I was curious, is that something that you guys went after? Because it is a double-edged sword, and we're going to talk about this from a marketing perspective. Did you go after that name recognition, the ability to license the name and be recognized as a GE Venture? We did, largely because, you know, developing a brand from the ground up is incredibly difficult. That said, we pursued it with the idea that we wouldn't need it long-term. Um, forever. So, so it was basically a pursuit as a way to bridge the gap um, and also to make sure that we still had the sort of trust stepping into the door, especially as you're going cold calling or, you know, with proposals for RFPs and things like that. That was really needed to continue to sort of open doors for us at that time. We found that it didn't take very long for us to need to rely on that less and less, which was really exciting. So one of the things that I've seen, it's very common, a lot of folks, especially in the commercial market, in the CNI market, rely on a bit of that name dropping cachet to be able to open the door. It always uh, was something that I was grateful for when I worked at Trina, when I worked at Conergy, to be able to say, hey, this, you know, this is Nico calling from Trina, the, at that time, $2 billion largest solar panel manufacturer in the world. My, how, how things have changed. Five gigawatts was a lot of panel capacity back in 2012, 2013. I'm most curious from your perspective as the marketing head, how do you break free from the gravity field and build a brand around DSD? The first hurdle was actually naming ourselves. Um, You know, (laughs) what what did we want to call ourselves? because we wanted it to be something that was obvious what we did, but we also didn't want to pigeon ourselves, pigeonhole ourselves into solar development, not knowing, like knowing with BlackRock behind us, like they obviously have a huge renewable energy portfolio. Who knows where we're going to take our business in five, 10, 15 years. And so we didn't want to, to glom on a name that necessarily pigeonholes us into something in particular. That said, it's also, we were also doing the, Keep in mind, we did this whole thing in six months. So we put ourselves out to market and ended up closing with BlackRock in about six months. Like that's crazy fast to, to, to do that sort of transaction. And in that time, we had to develop a name. Usually when you start a new brand and develop a name, you do extensive research and it's, you know, it's like, it could be a year long process. We didn't have the time or the money to do any of that. So it was like all of us sitting in a room coming up with, with a bunch of names and saw what to see what it would stick. And so we ended up coming up with, uh, after going through, you know, all the, the legal rigmarole of seeing what names were taken, which names weren't, if anything was trademarks, et cetera. We ended up with distributed solar development, which, in my mind was like, you can easily shorten it to DSD. And then you, if you build the right brand behind it, it will just speak for itself, you know, kind of like an HP. So we landed with DSD, also knew that that was not going to mean anything to anybody. And so trying to sell it internally first in terms of, I mean, you're only as good as the way your employees sort of present themselves to the world. And so you have to get your employees on board and they were petrified of losing the GE name. Fair enough. Don't blame them at all. But but a lot of them were very concerned about the fact that they can't say that they're part of GE anymore. We had to convince them, how do we bring up this elevator pitch of who DSD is? And so the 
ability to say that we're a GE renewable energy venture really helped with that. And then we had to go down the line of, okay, so how do you explain what we do? Because also, to your point, people think of GE, they think of solar, they probably sell solar panels or inverters or something. Yeah, I just want to interject there because I think it's a really cool opportunity as the head of marketing. You mentioned elevator pitch. Can you give me the elevator pitch and we'll work backwards from there? Sure. So distributed solar development, we develop, own, and maintain solar assets in the commercial industrial space. And, you know, that's essentially what we do. We do everything from soup to nuts. So depending on whether, whether you want to develop a project on one of your sites, whether you want to lease one of your sites for a solar project, or if you have a solar project that you want to sell, we're game. Is there a specific category of offtake or retail owner that you're looking for? Nope. It's, it's largely size and to some degree location, uh, just uh-huh. economics. But yeah, mostly we're looking for usually anything above, I would say, around 700 kW to up to portfolios of, you know, 15, 20 megawatts. I've been out of the market for a little while here on that, uh, on the development side. So what's the smallest acceptable size of a project inside of a portfolio does that exist anymore it used to be like no projects less than 50 no matter how big the portfolio is or something like that right 100 kilowatts 200 kilowatts i would say um we probably wouldn't do a project that was less than probably less than 500 kw unless interesting there was a real unless it was like a pretty significant portfolio that you know we could throw it in it's just not worth our time yeah i just want to give folks perspective right because there are still many 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 solar installers making great money doing 50 kilowatt projects right yeah. it's a different business model and when you are bankrolled by a blackrock so like that's a question i have what about the money is that one of your core strengths now like you had the ge name which is great you're repositioning rebranding but you got blackrock which is also for all of your sales guys who might bellyache about not being able to say GE, you could certainly say a BlackRock company and everyone recognizes that one. And that's something that that also sort of gave us that confidence sooner rather than later to even drop some of the GE name um, is the the ability to say that, that we're backed by BlackRock um, because that also allowed us to become asset owners and operators, which was also the, the big shift that this allowed us to do. And that's where we capture the value, right? Long-term. And we still will flip projects. We still will sell projects to the end customer if they want to own it for cash. That's fine. But that short-term profit is not necessarily what our goals are for a majority of the projects that we do. Majority of the projects that we do, we're better off having some sort of PPA attached to it where we have recurring revenue for 25 years. Does BlackRock now, are they able to funnel you opportunities and leads? Is that part of it? Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. We get some um, leads through BlackRock. And yeah, because they have a, they have a lot of, you know, opportunities. And yeah, so we definitely look at stuff that they can send our way. So what differentiates you in the marketplace from a canon of amazing Exxon Edison, ex-Tesla, ex-you-name-it developers, Borrego, uh, Nexamp, mm-hmm. like the whole Northeast is rife with colleagues, friends of your exec- executives who themselves have started legit solar development platforms. What differentiates DSD in the marketplace? How do you, as the head of marketing, sell that? So we have a number of differentiators, which 
makes my life, frankly, much easier. Number one is the fact that we have BlackRock behind us. So we have not only BlackRock, actually, I should I should mention that we have a lot of other financial partners that we've worked with um, and that we will continue to work with, like Bank of America, you know, Morgan Stanley, some of these these players who have helped with building some of our funds that we're dropping these projects into. We have some really strong financial partnerships, which means that especially during a year like this year, where some investment has dried up or stalled, we're able to actually go in and breathe some life into those projects that may have been fallen by the wayside just because the you know project funding stalled or dried up. We can actually swoop in, acquire those projects or co-develop those projects to get them over the finish line. So that, that's, you know, one, one unique thing that we bring to the table um, in terms of the final, you know, what, why does the final customer care? It's, well, hey, you, you have a, somebody who's going to be around for a while and strong investment in your project. That means that it's not going to be abandoned, especially some of the big names out there have gone through the gamut over the past 10 years with where, you know, developers have just uh, abandoned their project or flipped it over to somebody else who they and they had no idea it was happening. There's that trust that you get with having that stability of financing. Another thing that we bring to the table, which is super unique, is we actually have some really amazing and pr- proprietary canopy infrastructure um, oh, cool. like car solutions. Park yeah, exactly. And so, um, as you know, like most people, especially, you know, California early days of solar, everybody was really excited to put solar canopies on their parking lots because it provided shade and, you know, people recognized that they were going solar and things like that. But they are incredibly expensive. We have figured out ways to not only make it less expensive to do so, but actually get more from each system and make them beautiful and make them more functional. So we're solving problems that people didn't even know existed with carports and making them attainable again. That's definitely something else that we bring to the table. And then I, I would say sort of our, our third point that I like to make is that we also approach projects from a customer experience perspective every single time. So we don't, we don't just care about getting the customers the lowest cost for whatever they're asking. We'll actually go in and look at their site and address a lot of different issues that they might not know they had. We're very rigorous and we make sure that we solve for their needs versus building the project that we want to build. And I think um, customers have responded very favorably to that approach. When we go in for a presentation or a proposal, we send all the subject matter experts to speak to certain points, and that really impresses our customers. And so I think that that makes them feel like, okay, I have a real partner in this, and I'm not just hiring you know, a vendor to install solar at my site. Most recently, actually, within the past couple of weeks, we won a portfolio in California of schools above a competitor who is used to doing a lot of those projects in California. And we beat them not because we have the lowest price, but because they were so impressed by our team to the point that they actually called our CEO and said, I just want you to know it's been a pleasure to work with your team through this process and we've only just begun. And so we're really looking forward to 
to moving forward with this. That to me speaks volumes of not only the people who are on our team, but also our leadership and the way that they run the company where they allow people to do what they do. And it it really shows. You guys recently announced the acquisition of 17 megs in New York focused on community solar. Is that a particular area of focus for DSD or was it just that was a good deal that popped up? Is, Is it indicative of the kind of investment thesis that you have or how do you see that? We've been able to enter that foray in 2020 a lot because of our financing capabilities um, and what's happening in the community solar markets in places like New York um, and elsewhere. That's going to continue into 2021. Um, I would say it's, uh, it's not necessarily like our core focus, of course, but it's definitely an area that we've been growing. We recently hired an asset manager who specializes in community solar to help us with negotiating some, uh, you know, offtake agreements. Not only that, but also can you off-take. say who that is? Yeah, yeah, it's Kara Madden. She's from Blue Wave. Oh, yeah. um, she came to us from Blue Wave. So she just started. She's she's now at DSD from Blue Wave. Yeah, fantastic! What a grab. Yeah. I'm sure as your listeners know, finding some of the people that you're looking for, the expertise, there are needles in a haystack out there. There, you know, there are only a few people that do some of these very niche things. It's one of the hardest things about growing into a niche area of the industry is you have to buy that expertise from within the industry instead of adopting it from outside. Exactly. And, uh, and so you have to, you have to be compelling enough to, and, and I mean, we're lucky that we've been able to attract some really fantastic talent out there. We're operating so quickly that you can't afford to bring somebody up to speed on it. So yeah, we've been, we've been lucky. We just have a great team. You know, one of the things that I'm really keen to understand because I can see how the CNI market fits in your, your investment thesis, but community solar is to me a bit of an outlier. And that's why I asked about it. There is a big lift for me. It, it, it would seem on the back end that, perhaps is why you've hired her over from Blue Wave. It's not like managing a typical CNI portfolio. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. So, and thank goodness we made the decision early on that we weren't going to to tackle that animal because then you're go, you're del- you're essentially delving into residential at that point, residential. So there's usually a piece of your community solar asset that has anchor offtake, which we we can manage because that is kind of fit into our CNI wheelhouse. We may not manage all of it, depends. But the resi the resi piece we just outsource. Um, you know, there, there are, luckily, Community Solar has gotten to the point where there are vendors that do that. <laughs> yeah, there are players like Arcadia and others that'll... Yeah, exactly. If you asked me five or six years ago or so, um, when, you know, when I was at Solar City, ago. I was going to no, say, for... yeah, it was probably <laughs> like three years ago, um, when I was at Solar City and we were talking about how we were going to solve for this, you know, we were trying to figure out how we we're going to do it in-house. In Truly, thank God for companies like Arcadia and Sunshare and Pivot. Like these guys are solving major problems in the industry and not just for solar long term, not just for solar. It kind of harkens back to my old telecom days where you were about to say that. Oh my God, they're the new Comcast (laughs) of the world. They really are. That's so funny that that just happened because I was thinking the same thing. It's that all over again. It's the same thing where invest in these companies. Yeah, because it's, it's, you know, they have to decide whether they want residential subscribers to, to be on month to month or, you know, you, you, like it's so hard because your energy usage as a, from a personal perspective changes. 
we let them deal with that piece. But where care comes into play is basically making sure that that match is made and and works well and that we have, because when we're, obviously, if we're financing it and we're going to be the owners long-term, we need to make sure that that asset is not only producing long-term, but also has the subscription long-term. And so that management has to be closely watched. So she was definitely a key hire. I want to get into a bit more of your view on work and career progression, how you see your role in the industry. I get a lot of folks that ask me, how do I get in the industry? What roles are there that are available? Uh, I laugh when someone is a legit marketer and they can't figure out how to get into the solar industry because every solar company's marketing problems are the same as uh, Facebook's marketing problems, essentially. Like it's not, um, it, it's not really that complex. There's five to six months worth of, of, of learning to be had. But before we go to a question about being the head of marketing, tell me something that's true for you that very few people perhaps agree with you on. It may be tangentially related to how just I roll as a as a person, but fantastic. Um, if I if I were given two hours of me time and alone time, I'd much rather spend those two hours running ten to fifteen miles outside than sitting on my couch, you know, binging on TV or in my jammies or doing nothing. And I think that just speaks to obviously my love for running, my love for being outside, but also just I'm I'm. I'm constantly needing to to feel like I'm doing something or like accomplishing something, if not doing probably too many things at once. Yeah, I think that that's just what keeps me going and what keeps me, frankly, like through all the ups and downs of my career, I'm constantly saying to myself, like, trust that you have marketable skills. Mm -hmm. You'll land on your feet somehow. Like, I can't rest on my laurels. I just find it hard to do um, from a yeah. personal perspective. I love that answer. And there's a lot of us who are runners and listeners to this show. I am a listener of this show as well. I almost, I almost do this show so that I can grow and learn. Um, I do re-listen to all these episodes. I'm laughing at my comment just now out on a run at some point in the future, listening to this show. In fact, <laughs> how's that for meta? You know, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for partnerships like yours where you've taken on an aggressive career strategy, you and your partner, I guess I could say husband, but you and your partner um, mm -hmm. have two small children. You've basically got three startups. <laughs> How has taking on increasing roles in leadership challenged your sense of balance in life? I, I presume being able to go for a run is a luxury. I know that it's a luxury many of us want. Myself, as a, as a stay at a, a work from home dad with three children, um, it's often challenging for me to just say to my wife, hey, do you mind if I go for a two hour run? Like that's a, that's a challenge. Yep. How, how is this process of growing a family and growing your career at the same time been challenging for you, if at all? There have definitely been dark times, I'm not going to lie. But I think what it comes down to is you surround yourself with support and show gratitude. And I don't do it enough, but show gratitude for that support every day. My husband is truly my partner. And I'd like to think he thinks the same. Um, we allow ourselves to have, have to have me time because it, without it, we wouldn't be good parents or good partners. What's he do for what's he do for sanity? He actually bikes. He's a triathlon 
person, but uh, where biking is, biking is his, his core. So he likes to bike and golf. So golf, golf is the, is the time suck one. Um, sure. But you know, the one you have a hard time justifying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, like we, we need that. And so, so I, I think surrounding yourself with support and that goes with your career too. To be honest, I find my job relatively easy because I have really fantastic people working with me. And I don't say for me because I'm literally right now the only marketing person in our company. I don't have a staff. I rely on my agencies. I have a a creative agency, a PR firm, and a consultant that I work with. And they are my team. And I tell them that they are my team. Like they are an extension of DSD for me. I treat them as such. And so I think if you surround yourself with the right people and you have faith in those people and confidence, then that makes this whole thing that is life manageable um, because you know you can trust other people to do things. You don't have to do everything yourself. Um, And I think especially as a full-time working mom with a type A personality, that's a lot of times hard to do is to sort of let go and trust other people to do things. And, and I, I've had to learn to do that. Um, I've had to, and I am continuing to learn to do that. And I think that that's kind of what has helped me get here. You touched a little bit on the next thing that I wanted to unpack because a lot of folks would think, Oh, spun out of GE head of marketing for the BlackRock backed company. What does a head of marketing for a company like that do? Can you unpack a bit? What's your role? What are you responsible for? How do you organize the tasks that push the, you know, the marketing side of DSD forward? Maybe as a part of that answer, what does marketing even mean for uh, the head of marketing at DSD? In a nutshell, I manage the way people externally and internally view our company. So from a brand perspective, I help um, or I have developed our brand And then I make sure that everybody within the company understands that brand, therefore can be a brand ambassador and make sure that what we want ourselves to be is what people externally see us as and maintain that consistency throughout. And so it becomes a consistency with experience with us as an organization, experience with us as a brand so that people understand exactly what we stand for. That's sort of the the marketing side of things. And then from the communication side of things, I manage all of our external and internal communication. Um, So how do we communicate as a company to our customers, to our partners externally, as well as how do we communicate together? So I work really closely with our HR, our head of HR, um, to make sure that our culture and our values are all aligned and again, aligned with that brand. What that translates into is Everything from our website to collateral pieces to proposals to press releases, videos, photography, anything that we put out there that represents who we are and what we do, you know, has my fingerprints on it in some way, shape or form. Um, So from a day-to-day perspective, it it completely varies. Um, This week, because it is December, I was heavily focused the first half of the week of getting together what are our, you know, holiday cards and gifts for customers and partners going to look like and how many do we need? Oh, yeah. Blocking and tackling right there. (laughs) Exactly. It's like it could be simple as that or it could be like earlier this year, you know, what's going to happen when we completely 
you cut away from GE, GE no longer has a stake in our company. What does that look like? We need to make sure that we take any, you know, reference to ourselves being a GE renewable energy venture off of every place. You know, where, where does it all exist? Trying to tackle that beast as well. So it runs the gamut. There's plenty to do on any given day. I'm never bored. I'm impressed <laughs> that you uh, have taken a model of kind of solopreneur on the marketing side of DSD to have an agency, a PR firm, and a consultant. Is that a decision that you made uh, independent of leadership team or is that part of the culture of DSD? I'm, I'm also curious how often you're engaged with that team, but the, but the sort of decision framework per, first. So it's a little of A and a little of B. So um, basically, you know, as a very lean organization, we try to outsource where it makes the most sense to outsource. And this is one of those places that it makes a ton of sense, especially the way that I approach agency management. Some people approach agency management in terms of what are you going to do for me? Here are the deliverables I need you to give me. I look at my agencies as, as true extensions of our team. You need to understand who we are as a business, what we do, what our strategy is, so that you can help me come up with new and inventive ways for us to go to market. So it makes a lot of sense for us to do this for now. As we continue to grow, I definitely will need, you know, employees internally to be able to do some stuff. But for now, from a financial perspective, it makes just as much sense for us to outsource it. So as you start to think about, and you've hired in, in the past, not only your agencies, but, but staff, what do you first look for on a resume? I actually will scroll the resume and just try to tease out the ability to learn new things and take on things as needed. Largely because most of the most of the organizations that I've worked with, even within Comcast, we were still lean because we were a startup within Comcast. We usually are hiring one person where the description that is other duties as assigned is most of what they're going to going to be doing. So you need somebody who can take initiative, who can jump in and learn something really quickly. Um, and so that's what I look for the most. When a resume looks like it's the same thing job to job over and over, they're probably not going to be a good fit because usually I'm hiring for a role that will not be the same thing <laughs> over and over. Most of the job descriptions are written by people who don't have time to write job descriptions. They really just need to fill a role. And they're thinking of the things top of mind that they know they can delegate. And there's a litany of things that they don't know that they have to have off their plate yet. And they didn't have time to put it in the job description. And you can't look at the job description as the be all the end all for what your role is gonna be. You have to go in there selling as hard as you can about what you can do for that organization. Just going on that too, um, in terms of the, sort of that next step after when I, what I look for in an interview, I'm looking for somebody who can tell me their story. Ooh, like, yeah. what is your story and, and what brought you here? And where are you going to take it from here? I learned that uh, largely, you know, going through the MBA process and trying to pivot into a new industry is that I needed to know my story inside and out. Like, why did I deserve to be here and why it would be a good fit? And so that to me is, is super important. And, and I guess that's, that's the advice that I give to absolutely anybody who wants to have like an informational interview with me. As I just say, just know your story, get your story down. Outside of DSD, when you think of the word successful, who in the solar industry comes to mind? I think the easy answer is Jigger Shaw, <laughs> largely yeah. because 
I mean, just just from you know the impact he's made on the uh-huh. industry, yeah, and what he continues to do for the for the industry and for the people within the industry. But he's also very frank and down to earth and very uh, shrewd. That's that's such a good business person. That's what it is. Yes, that's the easy answer. I will also say that, to be honest, our CEO Eric Schiemann, but he probably doesn't feel successful quite yet. But to me, he's successful in that it's the it's that his type of person who is going to take this industry to the next level, where they are not afraid to to get over their skis a little bit, but they do it conservatively and responsibly in terms of understanding the impact of their leadership and quote unquote power. Power seems like a really big word, but the fact that they have entire organizations behind them, they understand that and they do not take that for granted. So it's those types of people where I think our industry doesn't have enough of those types of people yet. But the more that we have those people, the bigger our industry will grow. And, and because he's also one of the types of people who says, I don't necessarily need to be the biggest. I want this whole industry to do well. I don't need to be the winner. I want this whole industry to do well. Um, and so, so we need more of that. Are there any, maybe perhaps from Eric, but you've worked for some titans of industry. Are there any key lessons or takeaways that you've gleaned from some mentors and, and leaders in your career that you pass along? Yeah. So I think um, one, actually one piece of advice from my first mentor and my first job at Comcast was always look out for yourself. Don't rely on your company to do it for you, which has always served me well. It's, it's not, um, it, it's not as pessimistic uh, as it sounds. It's more so that Pull yourself up. Don't wait for somebody to give you a hand down. Exactly. Exactly. And it also speaks to just taking accountability. Don't point your finger at others or blame others for you not getting the role that you wanted or you not getting the promotion you feel like you deserved. Own your progress, you might say. Own it. Exactly. Exactly. That was, that's, you know, something that I've carried with me throughout my career. That's super important. It sort of speaks to that humility piece. Um, Understand the power of leadership. Make sure that you are constantly allowing the people around you to, to not only do what they do, but also make sure that they feel fulfilled. They'll work harder and better for you by doing that. Are there any methodologies that you've come across that help you gauge whether those around you are fulfilled or encourage that level of empowerment? Honestly, I think it's just feedback, um, both two-way, two-way feedback. It still boggles my mind that there are organizations that don't provide the opportunity for employees to receive feedback and give feedback, either up, down, or sideways. A lot of times we don't know what our shortcomings are or what we need help with because we think that we've been doing it fine. And on the flip side too, we also, you know, a lot of times employees don't get acknowledgement or thanks for some of the stuff that they are doing. And so we need to do better with that as well. And so I think just feedback is just so important that gets overlooked so easily um, because it is take, it's taking time out of your regular day-to-day job to do something different. For anybody who ever works for me, um, and even my, my agency is, you know, on a regular basis, I say, okay, how are we doing? How is this doing? Like, uh, you know, what can I do better? This is what I think you guys can do better. And, you know, what have we done really well? 
So I think that's just really important. Where did you learn that? I actually think I probably learned that at Comcast going through a leadership program with them where we were forced to do 360s, you know, one of those um, that you fill it out and then you send it to X number of your colleagues who you work with on various levels. And that was the first time I ever got this, you know, really wide view on how people perceived me. It was really eye-opening. And I must say, I'm still probably working on a few things to this day, um, but at least I know, but at least I'm aware of it. <laughs> That's like a first step, right? With that, is there a book or a resource that you regularly recommend or gift to others? Two, I'll give you two. One, this is, this is probably the one that I recommend the most. Um, and it is not at all having to do with work, but it's um, by Emily Oster and it's Expecting Better. And it's for expecting moms and their partners to read. And it is an economic take on what to do and what not to do when you're pregnant. So when you're pregnant, you are told all of these rules. And you are told that there are studies behind these rules. Well, Emily Oster is an economics professor, I believe, at Brown. She basically digested all of the different studies and just lays out the actual data behind these things that we are told that we should and should not do and allows the person to then say, okay, am I going to have two cups of coffee a day or am I not going to allow myself to have two cups oh, of wow. coffee a day when I'm pregnant based on the actual data that's shown? It's phenomenal. It is just a very good way to look at things because when you're pregnant, you're completely overwhelmed and, and you're given all this information and a lot of it is conflicting. So that's, it's a tremendous book. That is fantastic. And then the other book, yeah, the other book that I think is, that I think is just more, it's just a really great book on leadership and frankly, just being a good human is Give and Take by Adam Grant. I had the pleasure of... Did you take his class? Of meeting and No, I didn't, I didn't take his class, but I did meet him at Orton and, and spoke with him and, you know, of course, read Give and Take. Um, and his just, his outlook, I, I just like everything Adam Grant does, but give and take in, in particular, it's just a really great baseline for how good successful people really can, can have sustainable success. As expected, it's not all about trying to rise to the top and beat everybody to it. It's about giving back to the world as well. Is there anything else that for you is what you might consider a consistent habit that informs how you show up in the world and, and that has given you leverage? Kind of informs who I am, but I also really love to cook and uh, try new things, like new things in terms of eating. Um, and so uh, I think that just, it speaks to, I'm adventurous. I really love to travel and learn about new cultures and experience those cultures. Um, if I, you know, if, if my husband and I travel someplace, we typically don't stay at the tourist spot. Um, we try to figure out where the local spots are. That's just kind of who I am and who we are. That's where my creativity comes out. I'm actually, for a marketing person, I'm an, I don't think I'm creative at all, but my creativity comes out in cooking. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Where can people best engage? Do you have an Instagram channel of all your food? 
Uh, yeah, no. Um, yeah, my my Instagram and Facebook is pretty much filled with my children oh, um, and my dog, my sixteen year old dog. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm on um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and so LinkedIn is probably the the best place. I don't post a ton there. I mainly share stuff. In terms of following, definitely follow at DSD Renewables um, across the board. We share a lot of stuff. It's not all about us at all. We like to share a lot of other fun things about the industry um, or, you know, just interesting quotes and things like that. So it's a, it's a good follow. We look forward to learning more uh, through the eyes of social media about how DSD is growing and really grateful that you took so much time to really help, help us understand the path that you've taken and uh, how it is helping a newcomer, relative newcomer to the market in, in DSD. Let's end today, as we always do, with what we call the bold prediction. Megan, what one thing do you see happening in the world that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? So I think it speaks back to when we were talking about technology and about um, implementing new technologies. I think up until now, the solar industry in particular has basically jerry-rigged every tool that's out there to fit our needs. And I haven't seen anybody yet go out there and build these tools for the solar industry. And I think that the industry is finally getting to the size that warrants our own tools. So that whether that be construction management tools, sales, um, CRM tools, back-end asset management tools, they all kind of exist out there, but, but I'm looking for the one organization that can kind of put it all together and allow our industry and solar developers to do our jobs much more efficiently and effectively than we are today. Well, let me take the opportunity. Which of those is the biggest pain point? I mean, for me, it's the CRM management function, but um, I would say that probably the biggest pain point is actually the tying, tying all of those pieces together. So, Granted, there aren't a ton of developers out there like us who are doing all of those facets, um, especially like going on to asset management. But if we had a one place that we could look, that we could see our entire fleet from, you know, the, the projects that are in proposal mode through the development life cycle that are that have been operating for, you know, to the projects that have been operating for five years already, if we could have a snapshot of all of that in one place, that would be amazing. So I implore one of your listeners to go to go figure that out. There you out. go. Your thesis. Yeah, your thesis <laughs> has been laid. Megan Gaynor is head of marketing for DSD Renewables. And this has been such an enjoyable conversation. Megan, thank you for joining us on Suncast and look forward to how we can collaborate with you out in the real world soon. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. All right, Solar Warrior, what a phenomenal episode. What an interview with Megan. And I couldn't really get, get enough. I could have interviewed Megan for another couple of hours. Megan, thank you so much, not just for the deep insight, but the incredible candor and how much you shared about all the decisions and the twists and turns of a career. It's not easy to navigate a career as remarkable as one that you have put together. So thank you, kudos, and thanks for sharing with us your journey. I particularly really enjoyed the way Megan demonstrated what it looks like to 
pick up where other people won't inside of an organization. Part of the success of Megan's entire career is because she saw hard things and she went after them. You know, like that Salesforce project at Comcast. And those kinds of things can serve you for your entire career. Doing hard things early in your career, developing a skill set around it, you can build an entire career around that kind of stick to And that is what has ultimately elevated Megan. And it's what will elevate you, Solar Warrior. I would love to hear what takeaways did you have from this episode? I get a ton of folks who actually reach out to me directly, either nico at mysuncast.com or even shooting me a text. Uh, lots of you by now know that you can go to callnico.com forward slash 15 and just book a quick call. I also encourage you, as our mid-roll said, to go and book a clarity call with me right now for a coaching session. Maybe it's a fit. Maybe I can just give you a quick 15 minutes. It'll set you on your way. Maybe we'll just become friends like so many of you uh, have become over the years. And Megan as well has become. Well, if you're eager to keep learning about how that or any other of these episodes could fill your noggin, you can head over to mysuncast.com and Click on the resources page. You call that show notes. You can get the social media links and book recommendations. So much more there. You can click on work with Nico. I think maybe it says work with me to check out that coaching link. And I would really love it also since you're going online already. If you just jump over to LinkedIn, make sure we're connected and that you're following me on LinkedIn. It's a real treat though to hear from you. And I know Megan would love it as well. If you would share your takeaways on LinkedIn with us, just tag us or find my share of this episode and reshare it with your thoughts so that others can learn as well. Well, we'll see you back here next week as we always do coming at you with a Tactical Tuesday and a long Thursday episode deep dive like this one into some leader's life in the clean tech journey that we're all on. Thanks once again to our sponsors who help make this happen for you as free content. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And we are open to sponsors for Q2 and for annual sponsors, which is a option that we've just recently announced. So you'd learn how to partner there by going to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor, or again, email me, nico at mysuncast.com. I look forward to helping you partner with and reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like this twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>